Welcome to Sasso London, a London. Hi, everybody. Uh, good to see you. Uh, just a show of hands, who's never been to one of these before? Ooh, newbies, a lot of newbies. Thank you, that's good. Well, we have, um, we have like an initiation. Um, uh, yeah, you're so welcome. Um, my name's Nick. I look after the London chapter for Sastock. We arrange these events every quarter. Alex, the CEO of Sastock, will come and tell you about the big event in Dublin in a moment. And I will hand over to Bianca from Palo, our kind host, and she will say something welcoming and nice, I'm sure. Um, I work for a company called Shuttle in my other spare time, and we have got an amazing uh, lineup for you tonight. Uh, we have Richard from Juro, uh, they're over there, and he's going to deliver a little keynote for us. And then we will have a panel session, which includes Richard, and that is your time to ask questions, so make sure that you store them up and listen well. Uh, but that also will include Alex from Candidate, and Zoe Chambers uh, from Frontline Capital. Um, and we are talking about building sustainable businesses in these crazy times. It's not just hot out there, it is hot out there, it is crazy. Um, so yeah, you're so welcome, and then we'll have some time for some more drinks and networking. I think once we shut it like, it was really late once, wasn't it? Never again. But never again, so we'll kick you out before um, before something crazy happens. Um, but let me, should, let me hand over to Alex and he can talk a little bit. Bianca first. Bianca first. Ladies first. Yeah. Bianca from Palo. Um, just give a warm welcome and say thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Bianca from Palo. Welcome to our office. Uh, lovely to see some familiar faces. Um, lovely to see so many of you tonight here. If you want to learn more about Paddle, we're just on the first sofa there. Go and ask your questions. Uh, we're always hiring, so go on Paddle slash players and see what we're up to there. Um, and yeah, lovely to host Aspoc. We're like one of the main sponsors at Aspoc Dublin. We always have a good time, so please grab your ticket and we'll see you there. Maybe we'll have a party or something. Yeah. Party. <laughs> Sasco parties are always super legendary, so maybe I'll see you there. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't realise this was stealth recruiting. No, I didn't, I didn't really. um, Thanks everyone for coming uh, today. Gladly it's not Monday or Tuesday because that would have been uh, pretty awful. Uh, but um, not because it was Monday or Tuesday, it was really hard. Uh, um, I'm Alex, CEO of, uh, of Sastock. Glad to see some of you have been to Sastock local events. Uh, effectively, it's our uh, sort of like movement of uh, bringing local communities together, Sastock local events, uh, across Europe uh, together. Quick, get that spillage, especially with this red wine, be careful. Um, and uh, we also have a, uh, a larger conference. Uh, which I'll, I'll give a quick bite, but the best thing to do really is, and I'm sure you'll find them, is speak to people that have been to Sastock before, like Bianca, uh, I think like Alex, like Sarah Van, I'm just going to point them all out, um, but um, speak to people that have been there before and they'll, they'll tell you hopefully uh, how good it is, won't they? Yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> um, but it's like, I, I, th I think like Bianca said, uh, it just imagine getting 5,000 people together anyway, that's our target, in Dublin to have like a good few days of fun, like, beyond the fun, just like networking with like-minded people, 
listening to the best speakers in SAS, having fun, uh, drinking lots of pints of Guinness, um, all the parties. It's just like a great few days of just like SAS people just letting their hair down uh, for a few days. Just getting away from the office and uh, making the new SAS BFFs. So uh, think about coming in October. You got a little cheeky code there, bug off London. Uh, and um, yeah, hopefully we'll see some of you there. Enjoy this evening. We've got you know two pieces of content, uh, and then uh, I think like Nick said, uh, and Bianca will remain open until the last person leaves. Um, so um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. But uh, yeah, anyway, thanks for everyone coming, and hopefully see some of you in Dublin. Thanks so much, um, and thank you uh, to Sastop for, for having me and uh, to Paddle for the air conditioning. I think if we get nothing else from this speech, you'll at least be cool for a couple of hours. Um, so I'm Richard, I'm one of the co-founders of Juro and CEO of the team. I've been running Juro about six years or so. So when I was asked to speak here, one, I was incredibly honoured to be described as a rock star, which is absurd, and my team will vouch for that. But also the, the bar has been set incredibly high for this speech, so let's see how it goes. And I think the topic that I chose, which I think is very close to most people's hearts right now, is, well, how do we keep growing in 2022 in an environment which is completely and fundamentally changed? So first, just quick background on Juro in terms of our stage, just to set the scene. So we're an all-in-one contract automation platform. So it's a series B stage, if you look at it in venture terms. We're about six years old. Our customers, actually lots of them are SaaS companies, including Paddle. So uh, thank you again to Paddle for, for having me here. Um, and what they generally do with Juro is they process sales contract workflows. So we aim to make it faster to agree terms and consequently get your revenue, which is something we'll talk about a little bit as well. So we've raised about 32 million in funding so far, um, which is across three rounds. So 0.9 capital, Christoph Yant backed our seed round, John Buttrick at USB, the A round, and then we've just partnered with Eight Roads, who is a part of Fidelity, and Alston's actually led, led the B round in, in January. So that's kind of where, where we're at. We'd love to just do a quick kind of straw poll of the audience. I mean, who, who here is a founder? Hands up, founders, okay, lots of founders, fantastic. Who's an early employee of a SaaS startup? Couple, fantastic. Who's venture-backed? Few people, who's bootstrapped? Okay, we've got a great mix, that's, that's fantastic. I think hopefully a lot of this will apply to, to everyone. Um, and I think a lot of the narrative that we've heard, you know, if you read VC blogs, they're all about VC funding, funding multiples, changing, things like that, which you know, is important, but actually, at the end of the day, it's about how you run, run the business. So we've been growing relatively well. Um, so we grew about 200% last year. Uh, we'll probably grow a little bit less than that this year um, with pretty good net, net revenue retention. And things have looked pretty stable for us. Um, we raised in January, and obviously since January, the world has slightly collapsed, right? So I think we all know about the inflationary pressures that are happening. We all know about the war in Ukraine, the collapse in the public market. And that's, that's kind of coming across my desk now when our VCs say, well, you raised the last round at a healthy multiple, but next, next round will probably be like 12x your ARR, right? And in the public markets, um, Jason Lemkin, who, you know, I've had mixed views on, just writing's fantastic. Jason Lemkin today was talking about a public company called Weave 
who's doing $130 million in ARR, and the public valuation of it is $230 million. So it's sort of 2x multiple on a post-IPO company. That's a very kind of sobering thought for all of us who's, cho who's chosen the VC journey. So I recently had to re-forecast our growth for H2. And what I want to tell you about today is how we did that. And, and there are five things that I think all of you guys can be doing if you're not doing already. And I think there are probably lots of other things that this audience is doing, which I hope you guys can share with me too. So five things to be doing to sustain ARR while the world is collapsing. Number one. First thing is assess how efficient your cash burn is. Right? So there's a lot of metrics you can look at. You kind of know if you're burning a lot. You kind of know if you're burning a little. But how do you actually define efficiency? And there are a couple of metrics I think are really worth looking at. Um, so, so, so the first thing is the Bessemer efficiency score. So if you haven't looked that up, look it up. Very basic metric, which essentially divides your net added ARR by your net burn. So if you burn $1, do you add in $1 in ARR, 50 cents, $5, where do you stack out? And people generally think one to one is a really nice efficient ratio. So that gets you somewhere. And if you look at that, you can start to think about, well, are we efficient or inefficient? But there's actually a lot more to think through. So when we were planning for H2, we started thinking a lot about, well, what are we burning our cash on, right? So is this sales and marketing? Is this R&D? You know, is this hiring engineers? What, what exactly are we doing? And you start to learn some quite interesting things. So even at our stage, 90 people, you know, mid-single digits, ARR, millions, you start to realize you're spending a lot of money on stuff you really don't need, right? And you're spending some money on stuff you really do need. And so when you hear in the media things like, you know, we're going to slash the bottom 10% of performers or we're going to cut spend by X percent, actually a much better question is what exactly are we going to cut and why? Because, you know, you could, of course, go and fire 10 engineers, but actually the impact of that may triple through in a year's time or two years' time when you realize you haven't built the stuff your customers actually need. So getting a good grip on this, I think, really, really important. The same thing to think about there is, what kind of business are you, right? So SaaS companies generally are about products, right? So you've got to build an amazing product. So again, if you start under-investing, or your VCs tell you to slash, just think really carefully about that, right? You've got to protect the assets, the assets that are going to give you growth over the medium term. So first thing, think about how efficient you are. Put yourself on the, on the benchmarks and think about what you need to get to by the end of the year. And that was, I found, really valuable exercise. Second thing is, I think especially if you're in a co-founder position, people are going to want to take a bit of a steer from the top, right? So depending on how you plan, you need to set a goal, right? And for us, we have a master plan. We set it every six months. Usually got three goals, like incredibly obvious goals. Growth, product, people, and talent. It's usually some formulation of that. The team over here will tell you it's all kind of the same thing, and it varies a little bit. When we went into H2, I said we're going to have a fourth goal. The fourth goal is going to be, we're going to grow in a financially responsible way. Right? And everyone kind of looked around each other and said, well, that's nothing to do with products, nothing to do with growth, it's not to do with people and talent. How are we going to deal with this? And I think that sent a signal from the top that across the whole company, everyone needs to think about it and come up with some initiatives that can really help growth. So this really meant three things for us. When you broke down that goal, like what does it mean to be financially disciplined? Number one, how much runway do you want to have when you get to the end of, these, of this year? Right? We set it at 24 months runway. Right? So we want to have 
two and a half years of cash from today at any cost. Right? And we took lots of advice on this from our VCs. Was generally what they advise, and it's a fairly conservative approach, right? So you think about it like most of the time, it's only like 18 months of runway, and we just like figure it out. Like no, 24 months of runway at year end because we need some optionality. And I'll tell you why we did that. You think about a VC multiple, right? Generally speaking, a multiple of ARR. People had been raising at 10x, 20x, 30x. Raising at 30x feels like a really good valuation. Some people raising at 100x. Right? Now, our VCs have said to us, it's very likely going into next year, you might see multiples around 12x. So you have to just do the math in your head, which is if you've raised at 100x, and the next round is at 12x, and you want to increase your valuation by 2x, you need a very long runway, because rather than raising a 10 million ARR, you're going to be raising a 25 million in ARR just to sustain that growth. So very important to plan for that downside, ensure the cash is there. Now, the pitfall here with the team is that people suddenly start panicking, right? So people might say, okay, we need to just like slash, burn, cut budgets, finance gets very excited, you know the, the score. But so, so we started to break it down with the team, and I think there were three things that really helped him. Aside from, number one, having 24 months of runway at your end, making sure you double down on the highest impact growth hires, right? So if you look at your cash spend, it probably says 80% of it is like headcount, so the question is, what headcount? There's a great excuse to go back to the original plan you had at the beginning of the year and look at every hire and say, what does this person do for our growth? Is this an accretive hire who's going to pay for themselves in six months or 12 months? Is this someone who's making our product better? Or is this someone we just you know, have a lot of cash in the bank and we said we need to hire people and someone creates an Excel? Right? So really healthy, I think, for the team to go back and have a look at it. And then the third thing, which is kind of counterintuitive, is our people and talent team was fantastic, said, well, we still need to reward outperformance. So actually, that means more cash spent on certain hires. And of course, when you go through performance management, maybe you lose the bottom 10%. But the top sort of 25% of set of goals say everyone in that top 25% needs to be paid in the 75th percentile of the benchmarks. Because if you lose the top performance, that's a huge problem. So again, you've got to prioritize where you put the money. So number two, set a company-wide goal around efficiency. If you're a founder, it's vitally important you get ahead of that narrative, right? Because people are reading in the press every day, you know, Google is, is, is stopping hiring, people are slashing headcount. They're going to assume that's coming, and you need to kind of course correct as fast as you can. Number three, review how you think about performance. So I remember the last kind of round of cuts that happened. Like it was kind of the beginning of COVID. I don't know if you guys remember this. So the companies like Carter sort of laid off people. A little bit of panic happening. Um, and I think you know a lot of what we learned about that was that it's just good to look at the team, right? And if you need an excuse like the world is collapsing, to look really hard at performance again, so be it. But actually, a lot of these companies who are saying we're going to slash the bottom 10%, well, it's just surprising that they haven't had a performance culture outside of that. So I think definitely worth doing that if you're not doing it already, because again, there should be a certain amount of turnover in headcount happening anyway. So I think Juro, we're in a fortunate position. So our involuntary headcount turnover is about 5% year on year. So it's a company which is, uh, people stay at, which is awesome. Uh, it's a company that worked really hard to build an ENPS, which is like 80 now. There's a huge panic when it dropped from 91 to 80, but it's still like extremely high. 
And that's amazing, right? And all of you guys are working super hard to build a culture that's going to go and scale all the time. But actually, what, what will happen is if your growth flatlines, there's high burn, that's also going to be very negative on your culture. So we started to look again at how we think about performance. And we did all the kind of scary stuff, right? So everyone went on one of these grids. You've seen the grids. It just sounds scary than thinking about it. A grid which is like performance and your performance score and your head is somewhere in like a quadrant and start panicking about whether you're good and bad. This is healthy, right? It's healthy because it helps us to promote top performers based on objective criteria. It helps us to course correct with people who are struggling, right? But if you do that, you'll learn something. You start to learn that actually some people weren't performing who you thought were performing, and some people who you thought were, weren't performing actually are bringing in lots of results. So getting a grip on this is vital, because if you're going to go down the route of slashing headcount or correcting on plans, you've got to know who you need to keep, right? And a lot of companies don't, don't quite get that. So cutting headcount, free up the burn. At Juro, we were very fortunate that we had like $20 million in cash in the bank, and so we didn't need to do that. So the action we took was just to revise our headcount plan. We're still hiring, like Paddle, you spoke of Paddle, can speak to Juro about that. We're still hiring, but you know, we've revised it down a little bit. We've revised it down a little bit because we realized we couldn't have 24 months of cash runway at year end unless we made those hard decisions. So again, everyone gets around this plan, and in the end, people start to feel much more confident that the company has a clear plan. Number four, communicating to the team, right? Everyone's worried. You're worried as founders, early employees, super worried. Your VCs are worried, right? Their portfolios are tanking. Your customers may be worried. You've got to control that narrative, right? You've got to get ahead of it. You've got to communicate and communicate really, really well. So everyone's a bit nervous. Um, just remember, as a founder, you have so much more information than the team does. It's so easy to forget that all of the time there's information asymmetry because Everything's in your head, you're having all these discussions with the board. Team knows shit, right? The team has no idea what's happening. It's your job to tell them, right? So how do we tell them? So it's basically change management, right? You've got to start with the why. Why are we making these difficult decisions? Okay, so Juro, quite difficult decisions. Some other companies, super difficult decisions. You're slashing 20% of headcount. You need, to, you need to very clearly articulate why you're making that difficult decision. Second thing is, be extremely transparent if you can. So I presented in our all hands our cash balance, a graph of the balance going down, and the death date. Right? So one of those all hands, I mean, we play music at the beginning of all hands, every all hands, it's usually quite upbeat. I think I played hands in as interstellar for this one. Oh. Somber, but you know, you get good feedback as a founder generally team if you're honest with them. So we're just really honest and said, like, we've got 20 million in the bank, we're burning like 600k a month. It's a little bit, you know, this is a sustainable burn, but we're not going to start hiring like crazy. And people really appreciated that, right, that transparency. There's still, even after the, the interstellar presentation, a lot of questions come in. So we have a sort of weekly, like, poll, and people still ask, you know, there's loads of layoffs happening. Is Juro one of the companies that's going to do this? Or there are loads of layoffs happening. If Juro does become one of the companies that's going to do this, how will you communicate it? And really challenging, specific questions. So 
what I did for that is set up, set up a monthly Ask Me Anything. Probably you guys who are founders do the same kind of thing, but it just needs a little bit more communication than normal. And in my last one, people asked like super challenging questions, and that was great. Because normally, like questions like, you know, are we going to get like some new toilets or whatever, right? And again, yeah, important, vital. Don't get me wrong, but this is more like, you know, is the company going to survive? And you have this great opportunity to have a conversation with the people who've really taken a bet on your company by, by joining them. So just over communicate. I think the same thing is, if you think about change management, a big part of change management is creating quick wins, right? It's like little symbolic gestures that say they're not just a bullshit a CEO talking in all hands after the interstellar thing, and I was like nodding along with like, what are you actually going to do? You're going to do stuff, right? So what are you going to do? We said we were going to say 50K a month in non-people related spend. So we said, by the end of this month, you'll see 50, 50K slash. And actually, it sounds like a lot. And SaaS companies not so much. It's got rid of some consultants we didn't need. We revised down our software spend. We renegotiated some contracts, and lo and behold, 50k came in. But that showed everyone that we're taking real action, and that action has had an impact on the sustainability of the company, which is the place that they stay their career on. Right. So important to actually do stuff, and even if it's symbolic or quick wins, to get on with it. And what I found as a result of that is people didn't complain too much. So you expected people to come and say, well, you know, what about my budget? The marketing budget's going to be slashed, or whatever it was. People had, like, literally the opposite reaction, right? So people said, you know, really appreciate the transparency. I know it's going to be hard cutting this budget, but I can see why we're doing it. And this is the classic founder mistake, and I've made this a ton of times myself. It's you make a decision, you don't explain why. People kind of get a bit panicky about it. Confusion spreads, rumors spread, all of a sudden everyone leaves the company, right? So you've got to make sure that doesn't happen. You need to reassure people. Of course, easy for me to say that, you might think, because we have cash in the bank. And if you don't have cash in the bank, or you've got three months of runway, I don't have a great answer there, right? That slide, probably don't need Interstellar, you need like funeral music. <laughs> I would always lean on transparency, right? It's, it's really, really important, ultimately. I think if you're misleading your employees in any way, Pretty much in any circumstance, I think that is a bad thing. So just be, be, be honest about it. Number five, I think I'm probably getting up at time here. Um, number five, proactively communicate to your board. Right. So if you have a board that has like angels on it or VCs, you want the narrative to not be the following. Richard, have you thought about what's happening in the macro environment? The world is collapsing. What are you going to do about it? Right? You don't want that question. You want to reverse that. You want an email to say, some pretty crazy stuff happening. I'm thinking really hard about what we're going to do, and I'm going to come back to you guys when I have a solid plan. Right? Just get a little ahead of the narrative with the board. Fortunately, we have a fantastic board. They're very friendly, they're nice, very helpful, but not everyone has that board. Right? So if you have a difficult board, you may have some really difficult discussions. And again, you've got to be proactive as opposed to reactive. So, what we did very concretely at the board we had on the 7th of July is we said, here's the revised plan. So here's the model we had at the beginning of the year. Kind of made some assumption changes, the growth may going down a little bit, and you know, whatever it may be. We think this is a realistic plan we can achieve with 80% confidence. That's the first thing we did. Second thing we did is we took the strategic plan from the beginning of the year, which we call the master plan, we rewrote it, right? So not only did we say, where are we going to get to, we also started to say, well, how are we going to get there? What initiatives are we going to drive? And I was really worried about 
this, right? Going into that board, you're kind of saying, you know, you're saying we're going to get to this high level of ARR, and it's going to be 80 percent of that. Worried, right? We're going to cut spend, but we've just raised all this money, so like, you know, surely we need to invest some money. Um, it was super well received, right? The board was like, great, you've got an actual plan, fantastic. And you look into the plan, you get some good feedback on it, you speak to the team about it, you get buy-in from the team, you start pushing that all the way down into what you're going to do in OKRs, etc., etc. And then you've got the board on side, you have your team on side, and if necessary, you have your suppliers, customers, partners, and all the other other stakeholders aligned. So the world's in a super uncertain place right now. No one can forecast it correctly, and I won't even try. But in a doomsday scenario, what we've planned for, 12x multiples on valuation, that take a little bit more time to raise, there may not be the finance available, so you need a downside plan for you know, getting profitable, etc. And most importantly, we expect to see some turnover in headcount. Right? The turnover might come because people want to get off the ship, we get into difficult times, that, that's possible. But of course, scaling as a business, so people might naturally turn over as well. But there's probably going to be turbulence within my company, within your company, within all of the whole SaaS world, right? We don't know whether customers are going to suddenly start slashing their spend. You know, it might be in August everyone renegotiates their contracts by 50%. Big problem, right? And then all of those projections where you said you had 18 months runway suddenly become like six months runway because all the cash you expected to come in is not going to come in, right? So taking those difficult decisions now, planning for that downside scenario means we may all be pleasantly surprised. I hope we are. We go into 2021, and everyone's raising at 100x ARR again. Fantastic. I'm all over it. But for the VCs, I'm curious to hear from Zoe when she speaks in a moment. For the VCs, what I'm hearing, and anecdotally the VCs we speak to, is the era of growth at all costs is over. We're going to be looking at your year-on-year -year growth rate. Still look at that. We're going to look at your net revenue retention. We'll still look at that. We're going to look at your capital efficiency. And that's not something which I really heard at all when we fundraised in the last three rounds. So getting a grip on that now means that you create an asset in your company, which is not only do you have a fast-growing SaaS company that everyone's excited about, which is, I think, why we're all in this business, but you have a sustainable business that's going to survive for the long term. And if you do that for your employees, for your customers, for the wider world, you're going to have a great impact. Thank you. Okay, I hope you've been saving up some questions, not only for Richard, but for these guys. I'm going to let these two introduce themselves, um, but let me give you a little brief. Uh, please tell us a little about who you are, who you work for, what the company does, and um, so tell us about the state, the, the state of VC 
think of, of these things right now, fundraising right now. And then Alex, tell us about the state of recruitment right now, and then we can get into it between the four of us and you guys, and, and yeah, open up the discussion. Yeah, so. Oh, and that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, so I'll see you. Um, hey, everyone. Yes, so I'll be very quickly at the top of this. Uh, so I'm Zoe Chambers, as mentioned. So I'm a partner of Frontline. One of those awful VCs. Uh, we are. We have uh, two sets funds. So we do uh, fund I manage, which is pre-seed and seed stage, uh, B2B investing and European. And then we have um, a fund which essentially follows into high-growth US businesses that are looking to do market entry into Europe. So if you think on that growth stage trajectory, you think I need to um, expand my revenue from one market. Uh, Europe is a natural step-off point. Most folks do that. Um, so there are some very interesting uh, late-stage companies. Um, what was the rest of my chat? Oh, the state of VCs. Um, yeah. <laughs> Just the state of VCs would be a better topic. Um, so funding right now. So I, I tell you, like, so last in the last month there have been more VC events than in the last two years because um, people are having a slower time. So I'd say the growth stage is all but dead at the moment. So people are still looking at companies um, and. Absolutely the highest quality assets, by which I would say capital efficient, growing sensibly, great teams, um, still with a big vision and you know, a huge market ahead of them, absolutely getting funded, and in fact some of those still at some premiums. Um, but otherwise, I would say it's a reversion to kind of 2019, and I would also say that it's actually just a reversion to how funding should operate. Um, it was a bit wild and free-for-all last year, capital very cheap. Um, and some crazy decisions were made. VCs are really hurting. Um, so the crossover funds have basically retreated. So those are the funds who essentially have public portfolios as well as private. They were coming further down in the stack. Um, and they are essentially, you know, their, their own portfolios are massively down. Their, their NAV is really hurting. Um, and the same with some of these folks who paid 100x. You know, they're thinking, how am I going to talk to my LPs? How am I going to talk to my own investors about the shit decisions that I made? Um, and so we, much like our entrepreneurs, and don't get me wrong, we're also handing out trite advice, being like, could you just cut burn and like grow a great business? So we're doing all of those things, um, which is very useful. Um, but what you're reading in the news is, is very true. We're all taking a look at our own businesses. Our business is managing a farm, so we are also looking at how we think about doing that sustainably, how we can raise the next fund in a market where everybody is kind of looking over their shoulder and terrified about what's coming next. Nobody really predicted this state of inflation. So it's also in flux. People are pausing and reflecting. But I would say that on the absolute positive, the amount of businesses in Europe and the amount of US funds in Europe looking to invest here is out of control and as a reflection of all of the, like, the talent in places like this and all of the businesses that you guys are building. So I have no doubt that it's the best time to invest over the next couple of years. It's just that, you know, expectations, entry prices, I think that will be slightly realigned. So, so nice to be here. Uh, so my name is Alex. I'm the CEO of a company called Candidate. Uh, we work across Series A to Series E and we have embedded talent partner teams that go in um, so we have, a pit, we have a pretty good look in, into what's, ha what's happening in the talent market. Um, about 10 weeks ago, we really felt it bite. But we, since about January, I kept looking over my shoulder thinking, when is this, this going to kick in? And it all happened. I just had an all hands. I just prepared the team to say, look, it's going to get bumpy. And then Monday, we had about nine clients who come in within about two hours saying, 
I need to talk. Um, so it's definitely all changed. Um, the way I would describe it, um, it's, it's not all bad. Um, what it is is kind of nuanced. Um, I can split it into three camps. There are the ones that are kind of layoffs and freeze hiring. And they're either seed series A or they're much later stage. The later stage tends to be quite cynical, I'm afraid. So the Klanas who kind of laid off 800 people and then raised 800 million at a valuation, I think, 9x below. Is that the biggest down round in history? <laughs> you're not in no, okay. The second one is just the slowdown in hiring, and I would say that's most of our clients. They're still hiring, they're still hiring engineers, still hiring for sales, but it's a kind of wait and see approach. And the third one is they're hiring like it's 2021, and there are some people who are seeing this market as an opportunity, which I think is, and is kind of interesting. Um, Salaries, I'll just quickly share with you some data. We've just partnered with a company called Ravio, uh, who just raised the Series A, and they do live benchmarking for salaries. Um, 2021 went a bit nuts, and I'm talking about SDRs, AEs, heads of sales, and also CROs. Uh, it was 28% up in terms of base salary, and for anyone working in talent, any founders or anything like that, every candidate you spoke to had five offers, and it was getting Pretty challenging. Um, this is anecdotal because it's happened in the last 10 weeks, but I think what we're seeing is that people are offering or they're accepting the offers in the mid-range. There are still jobs out there, so it's not all bad, and I think we're still seeing a lot of opportunities. Um, we are waiting for September. We think, we hope there will be a bounce in September. We are waiting for January. That's typically, September and January are typically key months when I think forwards We'll, we'll actually make a lot of decisions. Um, so that just gives you some idea of what we're saying. Amazing, thanks guys. Um, right, I'm going to open up to the floor. If none of you have questions, I will come up with something dangerous to me. But um, anyone got any questions for these guys so far? Yeah, two, okay, let's go Paul first and then the chat on the right. Okay, so everything that's been said tonight makes sense, but in the fact that it makes sense, doesn't it feel like we've just been living fat cat excess, like stupid salaries to not really talented people funding fruit and veg in the, in the kitchen to make people feel good, when actually no one's really running prudent, monetary, fiscally responsible businesses? So aren't we just seeing like a natural correction in the market with what's going on? I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to repeat the questions <laughs> for the video. Um, are we just seeing what is should be natural in terms of the actual natural correction in the market, guys. Who, who wants to pick that up? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It's a short answer. Uh, so, my, I mean, this is just my opinion, but I think there's a lot of moral hazard, right? Um, the moral hazard in the large tech companies is the amount of cash on the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. You've got 100 billion in cash on your balance sheet, you really try and like, hire everyone you can think of, yeah. right? You've got no cash on the balance sheet, you can really carefully about hiring. So I think that there certainly has been a balance sheet problem. Mm -hmm. I think in VC funding as well, you know, companies raising 200 million, then raising another 200 million after three months. Like you can't spend 200 million in three months. You've got too much money. It's the problem. Yeah. You have too much money. I think you do, you know, even the best founders can be tempted, or their teams can be tempted towards excess, right? And I think, so, so I think there is a certain natural correction. I mean, the more sophisticated people have a view on the, the mac macroeconomic picture, but I do think there is something in your point, yes. Yeah, I think I 
I think you're completely right uh, from my side of the fence. If all we're advising is normal behaviour, is what I would say. So like everything we said is like what just prove all members sort of talk about. Um, and it's and in fact it's astonishing that some of the businesses that have been like newly formed in the last couple of years just don't even understand what like debt is, for example, because they've never even had to think about more terms of form of financing because equity has just been so cheap and so available. Um, and I think that the great thing that will happen is the swathe of kind of mediocrity, they will die quicker um, and it will it probably will lose some of its halo around doing this and it will actually just be reverting back to the normal resilience, hard working, things just don't come overnight and you do have to. Some of the stuff you talked about though, I, I do like, I mean I do like making employees at startups feeling great and I do think you have to recognise that paying people under market is actually always the answer. So, so no, I think the challenging thing now is when you're telling people to cut, you know, the cost of living has just gone up. So it's really hard to be like, well, cut everything, cut salary, but actually like, let's try and pay people who are working in the riskiest side of kind of the market, uh, under market. Um, but I think, I completely think that your point, which is, are we just giving like normal advice as to how you should run a company very well? Yes, yes, agreed. So I personally think the growth at all costs, uh, it can be very positive, but I think there are various different gears, and I think we were stuck in fifth gear last year. I think, I think growth is fantastic, you know, I think, you know, whether it came from the US, I think it did, I think we all agree it did. You have to expand quickly, it's great, it's exciting, but I think there's a third gear or fourth gear, maybe third into fourth that we need to stay at. Some of these people have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, yeah. <laughs> Millennials, I don't know. Cool. Um, Thanks, Paul. Uh, sorry, I don't know your name. Do you want to shout out for us? What's your question? Yeah, hi, this is Peter. So my question is, let's assume that a company is spending, say, $500,000 a month, that's the cash flow, that's the total expense, and let's assume that, say, $50,000 is the growth budget. Now, if that $50,000 was to be increased to, say, $100,000, isn't it reasonable to assume that at least you would have, like, a 20 30% growth in revenues, accounting for churn and everything? And wouldn't that just normally, uh, in an ideal scenario, I mean, I'm talking about products which are validated, right? I'm not talking about products which don't have a validated market. Why not just increase the marketing budget, explore different, explore other use cases, explore other regions, and just go after revenue, then think about cutting back? So I think you're asking, if you've got product market fit and you've got growth, you've got a recipe that works, why don't you just double down on that thing? I think it's a great question. Um, I won't try and do the math to answer that question. But, but I think the point is, assuming you're post-PMF, right, which is a very important point, if you're pre-PMF, you really don't want to be burning you know, anything you can. But let's say you've got product market fit and you're saying that there's a certain amount of your budget which is going to increase growth over time. You call it growth budget, I'll call it an accretive firm. You call it what you want, it's money it's that gives right? you more money, right? Money gives you more money. Um, so yeah, I think there's a big pitfall where, you know, in the first part of what I spoke about, I think people will be very tempted after their boards in September to say we're going to cut everything by 20%. That's very irrational. Right. You don't want to cut stuff like that's going to give you more dollars in return. So I think that thinking is, uh, in a conceptual level, absolutely right. 
I think you've touched on something really interesting culturally, which is if you are in a high-growth startup, suddenly communicating to your team that actually looking at new products, looking at ways you can innovate, looking at new markets, it's a, it's a no from now. It's just so strange, and it's not what anyone signed up for, and it's definitely not what you want to be doing. Um, first thing I'd say is PMF do actually have it. Like, really, really, really make sure, um, uh, because I think it can come in disguise. Second thing I'd say is I would in order of events, obviously like team, communication, all of the great stuff, Richard's taking you through, but shoring up your initial customers and seeing if you can maybe sell more to them, amazing. Um, you're suddenly you know, getting feedback from real people who've been using your amazing product and who might actually be ready to be upsold to you. That might actually be a cheaper route to accrete of revenue in a kind of strange environment. And you can figure out as well if those customers are likely to churn, fit you into your forecast, um, how much do they love your product? Are you actually solving the biggest problem? And you can relay all this back to your board and your VCs. It is a wonderful story to know that you've sat back and deeply understood your current customer base even more and seen whether there is chances to upsell. But of course, I think if you have got a percentage of uh, kind of whatever is going to be your brand to explore these avenues, I think it's just about exactly to your point, Paul, like normal behavior of being like, well, we're trying this, um, we're giving ourselves a specific budget, a specific time frame, some specific success metrics, and if it doesn't work, kind of like end of story. Um, but all of that within the framework of knowing exactly what your burn, when your death date is, excellent, excellent phrase, um, and what that assumption is based on. Because if it's based on your you know, revenue growing in a way that just isn't possible, like you kind of, that's the bit you need to be more realistic about. And so for me, it would be current customers, and then absolutely understood that if you got it right, of course, culturally and even you know, budget-wise, you should make space for innovating if you are scale up to switch between. So I think there can be a lag between the marketing spend and when the pipeline um, actually succeeds. That's, that's often why you start to question yourself. And even with PMF, you look at it and you think, well, I'm going to increase that channel. That lag is where all the doubt sets in. And I think in a market like we're doing at the moment, the interesting thing is that for most of our clients, the, the pipelines aren't moving. They're just moving slower, which is creating all this doubt across sales and marketing teams of, should we pull back? Should we go and keep things up? So your point is absolutely right. That's why, let's just wait until September and just see where we are. Anyone got any follow-up questions? Oh, that really some interested. Um, cool. Okay, yeah. um, how would it be mentioned that the information requirement was like six months ago? Have you seen any companies, VC firms, or whatnot? Cash, um, which is very interesting given the multiple compression that 
Richard touched on earlier that's happened. So there's definitely some, I and mean, then there are some VCs who uh, like, you know, are very earliest stage funds. There's only so much damage you can do, we are never going to be paying 100x, I mean 100x and nothing, nothing so. Um, uh, so, so those folks have kind of been protected. And then company-wise, I think all you've, the best companies are just the ones who are the most reactive, see it coming, as in like can see the tailwinds coming from America, coming in the public markets, saying, when is this going to hit me at my stage? It's bound to happen. Don't put their head in the sand and like switch their mentality sooner. Done the kind of getting ahead of the communication. We've definitely seen that. Um, some of them in response to VCs holding like seminars and saying, it's shit, just FYI. Um, and some of them have got ahead and done that beforehand. Cool. Uh, I think it's Alex, is that right? James. Series B market is a decrease in sales productivity, an increase in uh, timescales of the sales cycle, and also a higher turnover of sales and marketing leaders, especially at the sort of 90 to 180k level. You know, so they are increasing your heads of four VP, CRO sort of level. I don't know whether you're seeing that. Um, we're still hearing VCs having higher, higher, higher. <coughs> You know, from our market, but we're not necessarily seeing that coming into success. Are we seeing churn of uh, senior salespeople? Is that, is that your question? Yeah, and also uh, the sales productivity. So right. the resources you yeah. have, how productive are they in terms of increasing revenue? Yeah. And also the sales cycles we're seeing lengthening for big market enterprise solutions. With two million more SDRs in the market than paying in the arts, that's for sure. Um, certainly, certainly for senior sales, I think the tenure, I mean the average tenure was always about 13, 14 months, which was always, everyone was always really surprised to hear about that ahead of sales. CRO, it was another three months on top of that. We haven't done the analysis to see if there's any difference now, but I think I was always kind of shocked by that number. I think from my side, um, we haven't seen that we're a mid-market provider, but again, it takes it takes a little while for the sales cycles to wash through, right? Yeah. So you can start looking at the leading indicators, but actually, they, you won't really know until you're full through, say, two sales cycles, and no one knows that that's going to happen in the summer, but so far, we've not, we've not seen that. 180K. As a VC, I'd be having a shit fit at 180k and seeing your series A in that business. Try to provide a list of 10 VCs. <laughs> so, so the average last year was 140 on the top 10th uh, like percentile at series A. Base salary. Yeah, base salary. Uh, and previously, uh, I can tell you, in 2020, it was about 80, 90. It would be very rare to break six figures. So that gives you some idea of the increase last year. I'm in 2021. Not, uh, so, I mean, it's now mid-range. I think it will come down, but we just don't have enough data yet. I mean, I suppose you know, the salary thing is super interesting, right? Because you, you mentioned sales leaders. The question is, how much are they returning to the company? So exactly. they're bringing in five million in ARR in a year, and we pay them 150K, great. They're bringing in 140K, not so great. <laughs> <laughs> that was base, right? None of that was tied to... No, that's base. Yeah, yeah. 
So inflation is now at the highest it's ever been since I've been on this earth. Um, in the public sector, we see obviously strikes. Um, we're not unionized in the startup kind of world just yet. Um, but we've got pressures to kind of increase salaries because of you know, inflation at 9.4%. But at the same time, salary expectations are going, you know, if you're high until on the market, have gone down, as you were just saying there. So how do you balance the kind of, as, as a founder, this should I be paying myself more because of a you know, inflation, cost of living crisis, but at the same time, general salaries have gone down because of supply and demand. I mean, I'm definitely up for organising a strike. If you want. <laughs> 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 this looks like, I don't know. Alex, could you summarise the question for me? Oh, um, so the question was, with the increase in inflation, how do you deal with that as a founder with the salaries across your team? I, I, sorry, I paraphrased it, but... Um, <laughs> really tough one especially when you've got pressure on pricing so you're actually your margins are even under pressure I, I don't know I mean you want to do the right thing you know your team are under pressure so I, th I think it comes down to you need to look at what you have in the bank and I, mean, I think how you can help them because I think you're raising a really good point there. Uh, yeah it's a real tension so a couple of things that we've uh, seen I guess first of all like culture and people's desire to work at the place and like loyalty to it almost becomes even more important. It should be at the expense of like taking the piss on the salary side, but absolutely like fundamentally being like who actually wants to be here, who believes in the big vision, where we're driving to is is a huge kind of root from chaff point. Um, then the second point about performance, um, I think that Richard kind of laid out. <laughs> death style um, is, is a really interesting one to force yourself to do to be like would I trade off this 10% of people to actually really be able to remunerate people who I think are genuine game changers my A grade players and who I really want to get excited about this business and then the third point in terms of top down leadership and I'm not suggesting that people need to completely make themselves sacrificial lambs but sometimes and we've seen this where people are more comfortable as CEOs and founders they've taken a view you know I am going to show the staff that the next 12 months, I can do something to my own salary, which is negative, um, to demonstrate just how much I believe in the business. We've seen some CEOs even try to buy back shares because they really believe in the value of their company. Um, and the message it can send, and the other thing that they do is they ask the VCs to come in and be like, can you talk about why you still believe in us even during this shit time? And it can really just galvanize a feeling of, okay, this is a bit of a rocky time. We're all in it. Um, and actually, you are trying to do your fairest thing by paying them properly. My final point is there are tons of benchmarking companies like Radio uh, who are doing like live, real time. So you can be like, I'm drawing on the most relevant information now, and this is what's happening in my market. And there's ones all across Europe, I should say, there are competitors. Um, there are like six or seven competitors, and I'm not associated with Radio. So. <laughs> On the way here, I saw a LinkedIn job advert for a CEO to build the MVP with a base salary of 180k, which is amazing. Um, I was going to send in my coding skills. Um, one more question, and then I'll let these guys summarise, and you can ask them a question whilst we're having drinks. Um, gosh, it's so hard to pick. Um, I'm going to take this man on, on, on this side. Yes, you sir. I wanted to ask you, um, maybe to, uh, to the VC side, 
which type of, uh, of SaaS do you prefer today versus which type of SaaS are you afraid uh, of the most, like in terms of between low touch pricing, premium, and super enterprise pricing with long sales cycle. So do you have any preference today on the market? Uh, we've done all of it. Um, sorry, the question was, am I scared of a particular type of SaaS yeah. from a VC perspective? Is there something which appeals more now in this type of market? So uh, I would say, uh, and look, I think everybody, like Rich in particular, you serve kind of like mid-market, you can talk to that part of the market. But from the investor side, um, Enterprise is going to continue to spend on SaaS. It is actually spending more than ever. The sales cycle are definitely hard. They have always been hard, but it's a motion that people are familiar with. Um, this kind of self-serve uh, product-led growth motion, questionable at, at the moment. Um, there's kind of a, a disjoint between users and budgets, and that tends to be even harder when it's a kind of downturn. And in the kind of SMB space, the worry is that um, the likelihood of churning is just kind of higher because they are also sat doing everything that we are talking about right now, which is like, you know, your Netflix subscriptions are like, what do I actually need? What's like the most high value to me? And so for us, what we're, you know, it's all about pain point that you're solving. Is it a revenue driver, a real cost saver, or you're really managing risk for people? If you're doing one of those three, three things really, really well with a top class product, um, that's the SaaS that I'm not scared of. <laughs> I mean, I, so I did a little bit of angel investing, so I'm sort of much worse investor than Zoe. But I think the thing that would probably scare me in this market is in the mid market segment, generally, I mean, in Juro, we're trying to onboard people, get them to value within you know, 25 days, let's say, fully, like everything's integrated, it's done. I think if you've sold into enterprises where rather than a person solving a, a pain point for their team, let's say, someone's got a project. Right, someone in the C-suite has got a project where they want to do digital transformation, and you're like nine months or a year into a painful implementation, those are the kind of at-risk projects where the CEO can come in and say, we're just going to slash all this stuff, see if that, that hasn't really worked yet, and they're in a two-year contract. So I think there is some potential risk there. Cool, thank you very much. I'm just going to let you guys finish up by giving us your one thing in under 20 seconds. That we should think about when we're building sustainable businesses right now. And then you will give these guys a round of applause. Um, if it's in your brain, you go first. I'm going to do a really technical, boring, uninspirational ending. Um, so, one thing that the gentleman here asked a question about metrics. I think get a really good grip on your metrics. Um, one thing I would look at today, maybe tomorrow morning after drinks, is What's your ARR per employee? What is six month lag? Take six months to make an employee useful. What's your ARR per employee with six months lag? If it's under 100K, get worried. Start doing things. Oh. Good Lord. Um, finishing <laughs> on a wise one-liner. Um, if you have uh, some 12 months of runway, Start understanding what alternative financing routes there are and start really understanding, if you're venture-backed, what your VC really thinks of you by talking to them about the likelihood of next round funding, what their reserve policy is and how much reserves they've got against you. You can kind of understand there where you sort of stack rank in their world, how likely they are to fund you. Um, and I think preparation for all scenarios is key. So as prepared as you can be about thinking about an APC for the next round is vital. 
Uh, it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> there were 7,000 deals <laughs> with VC last quarter. Uh, that was 22% down, whatever. That was still 7,000 deals globally, 2,000 in Europe. So it's going to get bumpy, but there are still jobs out there. There are still great companies who are hiring. So it's not all doom and gloom. Well, there's no better time to boost maybe. Um, give these guys a round of applause.